Welcome back to another episode of Independent Thought. My name is Desmond Price. And for today's episode, we are joined by Wendy Weaver of the Montana Freshwater Partners Organization. Wendy, how are you doing today? Thanks for coming on the show. I'm doing great. Thanks, Desmond, for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on. I've been following along with your organization for, I think, a little over a year now. I've been following you on Instagram, and I was just really happy to get you on the show here and talk to you about what it is that you guys do uh, today. So first and foremost, just kind of like lay the groundwork for people who might not be familiar with your organization. What exactly is Montana Freshwater Partners, and what do you do at the organization? Sure. So we are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and we are based in Livingston, Montana. We were formed about 11 years ago, and we essentially work very hard to protect Montana's wetlands, streams, and rivers. So the reason we were formed back then was uh, the Department of Environmental Quality, uh, Trout Unlimited, and Montana Autobahn realized we Montana was losing a significant amount of our wetland and stream resources. So we were formed as a mitigation option to prevent that loss from happening in a nutshell. Okay. So, so what exactly, like, I, I guess, like, obviously people hear about this and they think, well, obviously people should be protecting, you know, our, our water, you know, our streams, you know, like rivers, creeks, watersheds. Obviously that, that sounds like an important thing to do, but I guess, could you just break it down a little bit more for me? Like why exactly is that so vital? Why is restoring, you know, watersheds across the state so vital? Like, what exactly are the impacts that could happen if those things aren't done? Sure, that's a great question. So in the Clean Water Act, and that was formed in 1972 to essentially protect our, our waters and very important act in place. And through that Clean Water Act, there's a, a number of regulatory rulings that uh, essentially lay out how those resources will be protected. And, and one of the, if you get into the details of the, the 2008 uh, federal mitigation rule, it goes into detail on what happens if, if wetlands or streams or rivers are impacted within certain thresholds. So we essentially, are able to, when those impacts occur, work with the people that are impacting those resources, whether it's the Department of Transportation, railroad, development, et cetera, we can work with them to essentially offset what those impacts are to make sure the wetland and stream function and the services, ecosystem services that they provide are intact for the public benefit. And, and what those are, Typically, the um, wetlands are very important to help us with water quality. They filter out contaminants. They slow water down. They offer us flood attenuation when um, during periods of high runoff, like we're experiencing right now. Uh, and essentially, they just provide very critical wild wildlife and bird habitat as well. So there's a lot of there's a lot of different reasons why these resources are very important. What types of contaminants are we talking about? I'm really curious to know, like, what, I guess, are we being protected from, essentially? Sure. So 
anytime there's a, a big rain event, you can go out to the street and you can see the sheen of oil coming off roads that essentially enters into our waterways. So when there's a wetland system in between this runoff and our rivers or streams, it, it can slow that water down and absorb those contaminants within the wetland system. And so instead of those contaminants going directly into the river, they, they can be treated essentially. And so it can be oil and gas from vehicles. It can be sediment from, you know, when we sand our streets in the winter, sediment is also an impairment. It can be fertilizers uh, from agricultural or landscape uh, options. It can be a lot of different things. Okay. So one of the things that I know that people always are mentioning whenever it comes to conversations like this are the effects of climate change. So particularly speaking, when we talk about climate change, what kind of impacts are you seeing that that's happened that the, that is having on watersheds around the state? Mm -hmm. I think the biggest impacts we're seeing from climate change are really uh, exemplified in the drought conditions that we're seeing in the state. Yeah. So we are seeing uh, more variability and precipitation in weather events. So we're getting bigger, more significant precipitation events. They're happening earlier. Snow melts coming off the mountains much sooner than it used to in, in a faster state. And so our systems are just unable to absorb this precipitation when it's coming earlier um, and the temperatures are are higher than what we're used to. Okay, has this been increasing over the last few years or does it seem to be kind of like at a standstill right now? What have you like witnessed when it comes to this? No, I would say it's, it's increasing significantly just in the last 10 years. And I think that's happening faster than we even realized would, but when we're seeing it on the ground, uh, versus over time, like it used to be, I think that's um, it's making a difference. So one of our projects we have up in the High Line area is a prairie pothole, and it's historically had water in, in the spring. And that area is in D3, almost moving to D4, which is extreme to um, extraordinary drought. And so we're not seeing water in these areas that we used to see water in historically in the springtime. And that's one example. So when you are seeing these extreme like drought conditions, what exactly, I guess, can be done in order to mitigate some of the damage from, I guess, from there not being normal levels of water in these areas? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think that's a lot of the drought planning that the state is involved in right now. They're working with local watershed groups and areas to develop and implement these drought plans. And what those plans have can have a number of different strategies or tools that landowners or others can use to mitigate for drought. So one, one uh, tool that we are looking at and a lot of watershed groups are looking at is what's called beaver mimicry. So looking at any, any stream systems that have maybe been degraded or overgrazed or impacted over time and not functioning in their natural state, how, how can we come back in and put these very uh, low tech passive restoration features back into that system? So 
they slow water down and spread it back out. So it rehydrates the floodplain, recharges groundwater aquifer and other benefits um, for those systems. So trying to identify um, opportunities for uh, natural storage or offsite storage is, is one of the, a big and successful strategy that we can do with um, uh, drought, some landowners, producers are looking at changing the types of crops they're using. So there, there are a number of things that can be done and, and this drought planning effort uh, that's happening is will hopefully identify a number of those. So I wanna uh, briefly kind of like pivot to the impacts of like human beings. Like mm -hmm. How exactly has like human infrastructure impacted, you know, watersheds and do you think that certain projects are more harmful than others, I guess, in regards to how they affect our watersheds? Sure, absolutely. Infrastructure has impacted our, our natural water um, resources. So, you know, typically we've put in roads and uh, railroad systems right next to waterways, and those have significant impacts. The more we have those roads, railway systems along rivers, we have to protect those. And when we do that, we're typically putting in riprap, some type of feature that's gonna protect that infrastructure when there's periods of high flow and runoff events. So when we do that, typically it starts to control our rivers or water systems in such a way that we're taking some of that natural variability and function out of the system. And anytime we do that, we see um, unanticipated um, impacts from that. So the more we control, harden, straighten river systems, we're essentially uh, concentrating that energy into a straight path and we're shooting that energy downstream uh, and that will inevitably impact downstream landowners and other infrastructure so and that's that's part of the work that we do is trying to uh, maintain and protect and open up these floodplains so that when rivers come up and they they start to move they have room to move across the floodplains so all that energy isn't getting concentrated in in certain places okay so I think one of the next things I want to ask is about, you know, how water, how water, excuse me, how wildfires affect, uh, you know, the watersheds as well. But before we do that, I want to take a quick break. And when we come back, I'm going to have some more questions with you. Stay tuned. Hey, Indie Thought listeners. Has this past year helped you rediscover your creative and crafty side? Well, then you're going to love our sponsor for today's episode. Bathing Beauties Beads is a full-service bead shop in the heart of downtown Missoula. Whether it's seed beads, semi-precious stones, vintage beads, or just materials to make a project, they have something for every person and every price range. Not from Missoula? Don't worry. They have an extensive online store and they will ship directly to you. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, they'll welcome you and help you make your next project a reality. You can find them online at Bathing Beauties Beads on Instagram and Facebook or at bathingbeautiesbeads.com. And don't forget to use offer code INDEPENDENTTHOUGHT at checkout to save 15% on your order.
Betty's Divine is a locally owned boutique on the magnificent hip strip in downtown Missoula, Montana that has been a fixture in the Mountain West since 2005. We have a fondness for vintage inspired clothing, shoes and accessories for humans, as well as the real deal found in our vintage department, Divine Trash. Betty's Divine presents a snapshot of Northwest styles with an emphasis on street, skate, surf and rock and roll culture, as well as Americana classics. Alongside a radical selection of clothing, Betty's Divine offers a damn fine array of shoes, jewelry, records, and accessories to satisfy any taste, whatever your age or vibe. You can count on us to prioritize financial, social, and environmental responsibility without sacrificing the look. Visitors enjoy a lovely atmosphere, dreamy tunes, and the best customer service in the West. And you can shop us online at Betty'sDivine.com. Welcome back from the break, everyone. Thank you for sticking with us through this episode of Independent Thought. So before we on the break, I kind of teased the fact that I wanted to talk about wildfires. And this is something that we are very familiar with in the state of Montana, but not just in Montana. This is something that's been happening throughout the entire Northwest, Idaho, Washington, California, Oregon, Nevada. We, we've all seen our share of fires over the last like, well, decade plus, really, they've been increasing in intensity and in longevity. Uh, unfortunately, they're having a, a nasty amounts of devastation, you know, across this entire region. But particularly for this conversation, uh, what impact do you see happening with wildfires as far as how they, I guess, like, how they affect our natural waterways? Sure. Yeah, I won't pretend to be a wildfire expert by any means, but what we have seen firsthand is a lot of these areas, um, systems that we're restoring, whether they're wetland complexes or along stream corridors, when we restore them back towards more of their natural state, when there's a wildfire, they're very resilient and actually withstand wildfires. So we, we actually had a project in Helena with Prickly Pear Land Trust, and we were out there monitoring, this was a few years ago, and we had a pretty severe grassland fire come through, literally running us off the site. And what was amazing about that project was everything around the project, the restoration burned and the restoration along the stream corridor withheld and was green. And so I think it's a really good testament that uh, doing restoration enhancement of wetlands and streams is actually a really great tool that we can use for wildlife prevention. And I think it's something that's not on the radar of our federal or even state delegation. And I know this because I've heard them um, when they learn about it say, oh, well, we never thought about restoration as a tool for wildfire mitigation. And so it would be great with um, this infrastructure funding that's coming down the pipe to try and tap into that and, and put it towards more nat natural infrastructure and restoration versus, you know, what are, how are we going to control the fire? How are we going to use, you know, digging big trenches to prevent it instead of using what we have in a natural way? That's, that's incredible to me that they hadn't, they hadn't thought about that. Um, when it comes to this subject, but, you know, let me go a little bit more into detail with you really quickly here. We, we've talked about restoration a few different times in this conversation. What exactly 
does that look like when you go into and trying to restore one of these areas? Mm -hmm. Well, it can look like a lot of different things, but typically, as I mentioned before, there's a system that has been changed in some form or fashion over time. And typically that's been changed because of agricultural practices. So whether, you know, areas have been drained so that they can be farmed or have cows on, on them, or if, you know, river or stream systems have been straightened uh, for efficiency, whatever it might be, they've been impacted. And so restoration involves a lot of different things. It could be putting sinuosity back into a stream channel. So putting those meanders where it goes back and forth instead of just straight. It could be putting, um, constructing uh, floodplain benches where they may have been re removed. A lot of systems get degraded over time and they start to down cut and create these really steep erodible banks. And so putting the sinuosity back in, trying to put in floodplain benches so that water can spread out. It can involve uh, plantings, putting back in native vegetation so that that grows up and, and provides more natural reinforcement of the systems. Uh, it can, it could involve putting more structure in, so large woody debris masses that provide, you know, more shade cover for trout and other birds and uh, wildlife. It can it can be a lot of different things. So, and in, in each project's different depending on what the needs are and what the hydrology is and the soils and and that sort of thing. Okay, and when you talk about, you know, beyond you know restoration, what are some of the the biggest challenges that your organization is currently facing as it tries to address the many issues that we have? Good question. I think some of the challenges we're facing are looking at, at a federal level, uh, the Clean Water Act is being challenged in a number of different ways. And I think that definitely puts a strain on our organization since we work so hard to uphold uh, the Clean Water Act and protecting rivers and streams. So I think that's a big challenge, not knowing what could happen to the Clean Water Act in the future. I think other challenges really stem down to dealing with a significant amount, significant amount of recreational use and pressures and people coming in and not really understanding uh, what impacts to the resources do to it and how to really, I guess, behave properly and take care of it, whether it's from simple things like trash to pressure at public access points and just general volume. So I think you know, we're, we're seeing this massive flux of people coming in using the resource, which is, I guess, you know, it's good. They're experiencing nature in a way maybe they haven't before, but we're also seeing increased pressures and impacts. And we don't have, the agencies do not have the funding and the capacity to manage it right now. So we're trying to work more on a public-private partnership model with local NGOs and and others to address these 
issues that um, we're seeing on our home rivers in our backyard, but it's really, it's difficult because the funding is just, it's not there. And we don't have a state, we don't have a state income tax and that's been such a bad word for so long. Right. Yet we don't have a way that people who are coming here, maybe a little bit from lodging tax, whatnot, but you know, we, we just don't have a way to get funding to take care of, you know, the pressures emergency services are seeing and the pressures our infrastructure is seeing from roads to our water and sewer. Uh, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty uh, significant. Okay. And, you know, as, as a political podcast, you know, I'm always wondering about the role that government plays in any kind of, you know, organization and their efforts and what they're trying to accomplish. Has our particular state government been like helpful when it comes to trying to, you know, like be a partner in some of your efforts or has there been some restrictions that have kind of held you back? Uh, has it been more of a, a helpful or a restrictive kind of relationship when it comes to the state government here in Montana? You know, a part of it is yet to be seen. I think there have been numerous efforts, not directly related to our work, but I know they're trying to create a task force and work with the governor to address impacts on our fisheries and our rivers. And I don't know how receptive he's been to that. And so I think the jury's still out on whether or not he's going to, uh, you know, work with local groups to address these pressures and issues that we're seeing. And as far as, you know, like, I guess a project that you're currently working on, where, where is like one place right now that you are currently trying to address an issue within the state? Yeah, I would say that's in the upper Yellowstone in the Paradise Valley. We have a very active and engaged watershed group uh, called the Upper Yellowstone Watershed Group. And we are working really hard to get better uh, signage at the fishing access points in along the Upper Yellowstone and talking about what, you know, proper ramp etiquette looks like and what, how to um, manage your waste and take care of your waste and leave no trace. And these seem like very uh, simple things, but people do not know how to do this. And we're seeing a lot of trespassing on um, private property. People don't know what a high water mark is. And so there's a lot of education and outreach we're trying to do with better signage at our fishing access points. We are also working on a recreational use study, which will be the third year this summer, trying to get an idea of what type of use is happening so that um, we can get ahead of any type of management plan that may uh, be presented in the future and just have an understanding of what's going on and have the data and information to guide that effort. So that is, um, where we're working right now. We're also uh, leading the effort in a project prioritization plan so we can identify what types of projects that will ultimately keep the Yellowstone and the Shields clean, cold, and connected. So the more that we can do to get these restoration projects in place and get these things done so that when we're experiencing drought, the river will hopefully try to be resilient to those. We're also doing that. 
Okay. And I, I think finally, one of the things that I want to know is kind of on a more personal level. You know, we spent a lot of time talking in this episode about why these things are important in general, but now I kind of want to ask you specifically, why is this work important to you? And why did you decide to get involved with this organization and, and make this your life's profession? Okay. Yeah, I guess I uh, grew up in Montana and I went to Montana State University and got my engineering degree. So I was a practicing civil engineer for almost 25 years. And, you know, at, at the tail end of that, it became pretty soul sucking. And I just knew it wasn't really what I wanted to be do doing and really was not in line with my values. And we grew up pretty much on the rivers and in the back country and in the wilderness um, as kids and always had a very deep connection and appreciation for how beautiful and spectacular Montana was. And there wasn't a lot of people here. And I think that was one of you know, the things that made me never wanna leave this place and why I'm working so hard to protect it. And so for me, it was a pretty easy shift to go from what I might say is uh, messing it up to being on the other side of actually trying to restore and protect it. So it was a pretty easy shift for me. I was really burnt out and uh, this work is super challenging, but also very rewarding. So I'm Love glad that. to be here. Love that. Th Wendy, thank you so much for being here and for talking to us about, you know, everything going on with the Montana Freshwater Partners. Uh, where can people find out more about you and the organization if they were to follow along online? Sure, they can go to our website, which is freshwaterpartners.org. And we also have an Instagram page, which is Montana Freshwater Partners. So we would appreciate the support. And uh, yeah, thanks, Desmond, for having me on today. Absolutely. So for those who are interested, the links will be in the episode description. So go ahead and click down there now and you'll see both those links. Uh, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today, Wendy. Really do appreciate it.